BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. I have Paco Benitez from a lot of stuff, the merge and uh, working at Shield AI. Uh, so we'll get to talking to him in a second. Thanks again for listening. And then remember, uh, or actually don't remember, because it's the first time I'm telling you, uh, we now are able to accept donations. So if you'd like in the show notes, uh, you can uh, click the link. It'll take you to our red circle uh, donations. And then anything can help uh, just uh, keep this podcast uh, from being... Uh, exceptionally expensive to produce. Uh, but overall, we appreciate anything you're able to provide. So Paco, thanks for being on the podcast. And uh, so go ahead and tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. It's not a trap. <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, thanks for having me, Vader. Um, yeah, so I've uh, recently retired 25 years in the military, 17 in the Air Force, uh, eight in the Marine Corps. Uh, it's a story for a different day. Strike Eagle background, weapons school grad, uh, did assignments, uh, let's see. Overseas, obviously, uh, five deployments, uh, about 250 combat missions in the Strike Eagle as a backseater. Uh, did time in the Pentagon. Um, I did time in Congress uh, working for a senator. So that's a, another war story there. A, that is a war zone on itself. Yeah. Um, did some time at DARPA and did some time in Silicon Valley and ended up my last assignment in uh, an operational test uh, down in Florida. Whew. That's me. That's a, uh, yeah, you got a. Uh storied background you've done a lot of different things what would you say out of all of your military experience what was the thing you were like that was a cool experience that i did not expect oh oh man that's a that's a tough <laughs> one i'd have to I, I have to get back with you actually all right yeah we'll uh, we'll bring it back around yeah because i feel like end. all right because so much <laughs> of what at least in my experience and then tell me if this is similar there are a lot of things you go you go fly fighters you go you know do stuff and you're like you expect it to be cool, and turns out most of the time it's cool. But then there's a lot of things that you get into that you're like, oh man, like I, I like, I'm the wedge on this one, or I ended up drawing the short straw. And then at, in the end of it, you actually are like, man, that was a, a better experience than I expected. Yeah, experiences. There are lots of them. Uh, I like to I like to say that I've somehow managed to cram several lifetimes of experiences in a short 25 year span. That I think that's the way to. My, uh, <laughs> That's the way to do it, though, you know, because I feel like in my experience, there's been a lot of times where having had these experiences helps me have a better perspective moving forward. So you oh, get, yeah. you know, whether it's about the organization you're working with or for or whatever, you gain experiences and then you have a better perspective moving forward. And then 
when you're, you know, when I was a young captain, like I knew all the answers, you know, everybody was wrong and I was right. And now Just I'm like older. my kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and then you grow up and you're like, oh, I get it. Like I'm so uninformed that I, I know that I don't even know. Um, well, that's great. So you started the merge uh, and what kind of prompted you to do that? What was something that you were like, this needs to happen and I'm going to be the guy? Yeah, so uh, I have kind of a, I'm not a tech, uh, I'm not an engineering background. I have a degree in basket weaving, uh, bachelor's and master's in basket weaving. Uh, <laughs> but um, I did stay at a Holiday Express with some assignments in technology and uh, and interacting with a lot of tech as we do in the Air Force, kind of a tech-centric uh, service. And so kind of got interested in, in the technological aspects of uh, solving problems. Uh, so there's some problems you can't out-tactic uh, your way to a solution. So uh, that's kind of how uh, I got started. Um, and what had happened was, as I was trying to learn more about the space, is I found out it was really, really hard to, to sort through all of the chaff that's out there for as far as defense news reporting to find the nuggets that I had cared about. So the things that I, uh, for instance, the things I do not care about is a uniform change or a commander got fired or a tattoo policy. Yeah. Who I don't care. I do not care. But a lot of the, it turns out a lot of the defense reporting outlets, like, or just, you know, most of it is that kind of stuff that you just have to really sort through. So uh, I, I started you know, consolidating stuff and building kind of a, a way to, to sort through that every day. And, uh, you know, I started thinking, I was like, you know, I, I clearly cannot be the only person who has this, who has the, wants this, uh, but there isn't a solution out there. And so I said, well, COVID had hit and I decided to, to learn a little bit um, as a hobby and pick up uh, writing a newsletter. Uh, so uh, that's how it started. And I try to, uh, it's uh, serious stuff, but don't take it too seriously. Yeah, well, that's good. And I think that's the best kind of content where you get a lot of good information, but you don't get bogged down in, in it because it's, it's, I mean, it, it is going to be some intense information. Uh, I actually think, cause you also work for uh, war on the rock rocks, right? You're a producer there or uh, editor, contributing editor. Editor. Yeah. So I've go. been there for probably four or five, six years now. It's been a while. Yeah. Well, I think it was them. Uh, Trace and I were talking about this and uh, I think it was Trace, but either way, the, uh, there was an article, you know, the standard like, oh, the sky is falling, they're retiring the raptor, the raptor's dead. And then I think uh, that War on the Rocks actually put the article out and they were like, hey, the reality is that, and then it kind of explained the the true nature of it. So mm -hmm. the whole, everyone freaking out, and then it turns out it was, you know, 10% truth, which is pretty standard in the fighter community. So yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's good. I think that's great because I think, we have, it, it's an interesting time where we have a problem of too much content. We have too much information yep. that's, we're able to, to get information from and locations to get that back. Uh, so it's good to be able to synthesize that into useful information. Cause like you said, yeah. Oh, sweet. I can, can have tattoos on my forearms and, and hands now. It's like, okay, what else is new? Um, well, that's great. So then when did you start working at uh, shield AI? Uh, I've only been working there for probably a month and a half or so. Okay, uh, nice. So that's pretty new. Yeah, but I've been, yeah, so I, I was doing some, uh, my last, you know, six months or so, I was doing some um, consulting work as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And uh, yeah. I had done some, I had done some work for several companies and they were one of them. And then, uh, 
it was a good good run to get under the hood and actually look at some companies, what they were doing, what's actually real, what's not. And you know, at the end of the day, um, I wanted to uh, to continue serving, um, not wearing uniforms. So I definitely wanted to stay in defense tech. I wanted to uh, work on a, uh, a a focus and a mission area that I thought had a huge upside in the future, especially the next ten years. And then lastly, probably the most important is I wanted to uh, you know pick the winning horse. Yeah. And so that's the, you know the, you combine those three, and that's that's kind of where I uh, where I landed. So can you explain to me why it seems like almost Mad Lib style that AI is like all used across the board? Like everybody has AI. Like why is AI such a universal tool? Obviously artificial intelligence, but why is it so frequently used? Is it just like the hot button term right now that people like, or is it everybody is using some form of AI to produce these products? Yeah, it really just comes with data, data decisions, right? So this is going to sound, uh, this is kind of weird because the name of the company that I work for is Shield AI. Um, I actually don't like the term AI. Uh, I prefer <laughs> to, to speak it in, in uh, references of autonomy because AI, I think, is a, is a pretty loaded word, uh, not just for you know, the buzzword uh, that, it, that it's become the past few years especially, but when you say artificial intelligence, and you say that to 10 people, instinctively there's 10 different things that they're thinking of and none of them are probably the thing that you're actually talking about. And so, yeah. you know, whether you think if it's like, you know, something out of Terminator or, or whatever, or something in a movie that you saw, you know, Vader, you'd probably know this, how many you know, uh, military movies do you see and you go, no, that's not real. Like, you know, hey, that that's a that's a Reaper with a jet engine. Like, that's not real. Like, you know, yeah, things exactly. like that. Pretty you know, much every movie, yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing yeah. with, uh, with with when you use the term you know, artificial intelligence. So I prefer to speak it uh, in terms of autonomy. So it, it's helping automate things. And the, there's levels of autonomy, points of autonomy, and degrees of autonomy. So those are kind of the three ways that I think about it. So in the you, uh, Vader flying the Viper, um, your airplane would not take off without autonomy because you have a digital flight control system. And so that, that is the point of autonomy. The level of autonomy, uh, you think of it as a levels like one through five, that's like level one, level two kind of autonomy. It's automating some things and it's making some decisions based on inputs, right? Like that is, that is a very rudimentary form of, uh, of AI if you wanted to think it in those terms, right? So that's like your level one, level two kind of autonomy. If I use that flight control computer example in the F-16, and now um, that's the point of autonomy. And now I dial up the level of autonomy. And so when you get to like uh, of the five levels, after you pass level three, level four, level five is non-deterministic, which means it's making decisions. And there's a, a few different ways that it could arrive at those decisions, right? And trained to make decisions. And so instead of being able to keep the aircraft stable so you can provide inputs, you know, that same example, maybe a level five autonomy would be creating outputs. So it's actually maneuvering the aircraft based on the environment. So that's the kind of the difference of how you would dial that. Now you have degrees of autonomy, which is I've got an operator that is um, in the loop. I've got an operator that could be on the loop or an operator that's off the loop. He's not even involved. And so there's that's kind of the three basic ways that you, and you could apply that to so many different things. A radar, 
You know, when you when you flew the Viper and you're working, you're you are working your radar. It's doing some things in the background for processing for autonomy, like autonomy, like level one autonomy. You know, like your level, you know, level three autonomy might be sanitize this airspace, and it's managing its own uh, footprint search volumes to sanitize that. And like, great. And maybe your level four, level five autonomy is it's doing everything, and it's just telling you about your environment. So you don't even need to know what it's looking for. It's 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 sensing stuff. It's looking for things like, hey, I haven't, I haven't looked in this area for a while. I'm going to go put my sensor back over there and update that. And so that's stale data. Now I'm going to refresh my, my essay. So that's kind of the difference um, between that. And you could pick anything that that applies to. Now, and I, I use that example because that's kind of what, what we're focused on um, in the company I work for now. But you can apply that same thing for like maintenance. Right. So like level one autonomy for like logistics is, hey, these things are here. Uh, we're going to order them. And it automatically like when I buy something from Walmart, it reorders it uh, online. When you scan something at the checkout, it automatically sends the order into replace. Like your level, your like your level four, level five autonomy is Amazon. So Amazon, uh, as you have the screen, up, I don't know how people know this, but when you have the screen up, when you're moving your mouse, it's actually tracking where you're moving your mouse on the screen. And it is automatically moving things to your geographic location based on the things that you're interested in to shorten the delivery time. So before, and this isn't in your checkout, this isn't paying for, it's literally you scrolling a screen and where you're moving your mouse and how long you've stayed static on a screen. If you're reading a product review, it's actually moving things to your, to your geographic area, even if you don't buy it. And so that's, that's, the, that's the kind of different levels of, of automation that you can think of. So. You can call it AI if you want. I prefer uh, degrees of autonomy. Yeah, my wife's probably costing Amazon a fortune because she leaves stuff in my uh, <laughs> shopping cart for months. The uh, that's pretty. That's a really good way to look at it because uh, I am definitely the caveman in the uh, the fighter pilot squadron. So I'm I'm not the tech guy. People are always surprised at how bad I am at it, uh, and it probably shows in my video and audio editing. But uh, that's that's really good. And what it what it made me think about was auto GCAS, so the auto yep. ground avoidance or collision avoidance system, uh, which is in the F-16, I believe it's in the F-35. Uh, so where would that fall in that? So I guess explaining auto GCAS is an F-16 is flying. It knows via GPS where it is over the ground, and then it knows via DTED, uh, which is effectively the elevation of that ground, uh, that the jet will require more than five G's to recover, to not hit the ground. And the jet actually takes over and then will recover the jet to level flight. Uh, so where does that fall in that autonomy? Is that where it jumps up to like a level five? Cause it's actually an output. Uh, I would say that's probably like a, a level three, maybe a okay. little bit level four. And, and the reason I say that is because although it's, it's got a, it's got an output, the, the difference is, is that output is based off of a known parameter, right? So, and one of the reasons is because auto GCAS, it, there's a lot of trust involved in that system, right? That system was actually ready to be deployed on the F-16 10 years before it was. Yeah. And the reason it didn't is because of trust. So one of the things that uh, the auto GCAS systems have is, you know, you can go look in your, your dash one, it'll tell you what it's going to do, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's, predetermined what the what the maneuver it's I going see. to do. So it's going to go, I'm going to roll, use my attitude indicator, and I'm going to nearest direction to get the you know sunny side up. And I'm going to pull this many Gs with wings level for this much time to climb to this altitude. And I go, okay. 
Like that is that is kind of a, a script, right? Yeah. So all those so inputs and stuff are complicated, and it, it is actually maneuvering the jet. But it's uh, it, and I don't know if your if the F sixteen is a little bit different, but like the the EX has something like that too, where it's predetermined okay. where it's going to go and the parameters that it operates in, right? If you were to apply now, say you apply your auto GCAS into a area that was uh, you know like a city with skyscrapers. Okay, so now DTED doesn't work because it's man-made things and the nearest direction to avoid hitting something may not be up and may be to the side. So that's where you would start based on the environment. It would determine uh, which way to go to save you. That's kind of the difference between the two. I see. That makes sense. And that's uh, it's good that we're, we're getting it. And I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate that we obviously lose, you know, people and uh, aircraft pretty much every year uh, due to kind of CFIT controlled flight into terrain. Um, so it's, it's great that these programs are coming out, but it's definitely a glove save, you know, the, the, oh, yeah. you know, primary, secondary and tertiary should be the pilots and their, their flight mates and crews doing the right thing. But it's, it's good that those things exist. So the, if you could give us uh, again for, for the cavemen out here, uh, shield AI, they're kind of 30,000 foot view. Like what are they trying to tackle? What is their biggest problem set uh, that they're trying to solve? Ooh, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of artificial intelligence companies that are in this space uh, in, in defense, and most of them are doing all different things. And because, like you said, AI has a lot of applications. Uh, what Shield AI is focused on is AI for maneuver and edge edge processing AI. So we take something, think of it like a like a Group Five um, uh, RPA or drone. So think of it like a jet powered drone, right? Okay. With with a brain on it that's making cognitive decisions like a human pilot would, but there's no human pilot, and it's it's taking in sensor data, and using that to inform its decision space. The decision space is informed by you know an EM diagram, uh, operating limits, training rules, and uh, the operating environment, the threat models from you know NASIC, MISIC, uh, missile threat data. So it's it's you're training a behavior to do something that's human like. And that cognition without the human. That's so I feel like that's, I mean, that seems like pretty, uh, pretty high level and just difficult things to kind of do. Do you see a lot of times where, because again, like we have tactics built and procedures built over years and years and years of humans flying it. Do you see that the majority of time the AI is following what we would view as like a normal execution or does the AI kind of go what we would consider wild dingo, but still get to the same end result? Uh, yes, no, and maybe. Uh, so <laughs> I can tell you, um, I'll t- I can share a little bit. So there's there's a lot of different approaches to, to deploy that autonomous behavior and how you build the behavior um, determines some of those excursions. So there's a, there's a, what we call like a pure RL model where it's, it's all reinforcement learning. So you give it very little left-right limits. Uh, it starts doing stuff and it's trained on a neural network. You deploy it in a, like a simulated environment and it's, you know, it's learning how to do stuff. So we had, uh, we have a, um, an, an agent, we call them agents. We have an agent that, uh, an F 16 agent that is the world's best dogfighter. Like it, it, no human can beat it. Uh, we actually have to dial it down and inject a bunch of noise into it to, uh, so people don't die as fast. Uh, but it's unbeatable. <laughs> and, 
when that was when that I mean, it's, it's great now but again some that was built over uh, a little bit of time and the, the architecture approach uh, to do that but but as that was being built um, it, you told it to win but you didn't give it any constraints and one of the things that the, the model would do is it would uh, as it went to the merge um, it, it saw turning room at the merge as uh, opportunity and it would basically bunt uh, zero out the line of sight, shoot the gun, uh, kill the, the bandit it was merging with, and then like have a midair. Like, well, <laughs> you did kill the bandit, like, <laughs> but uh, you also want to stay alive. Uh, so we, we had to put some controls in to like, okay, I want to, when you're going to the merge, you want to optimize for some turning room, so then you can have a post-merge maneuver. And so, okay, now I know what you want me to do. It's like having the world's dumbest wingman and you have to like at the beginning you're like why did you do that like well you didn't tell me not to like true don't do that and so you start with some there's most of the time the solution becomes kind of a hybrid solution so there's some parts where you want to use kind of a neural network to train these little subroutines uh, for reinforcement learning and there's some things that you just want to tell it to do it's very scripted like when you're doing a for instance like i don't need artificial intelligence to do a long-range commit like the mechanics are pretty well known. There's a reason why you're doing them. Great. All you have to do is tell it, commit. This is what you do when you commit. And it does, you know, these four mechanics. And so it's basically optimized to do those four mechanics the best every time. When you do things like, you know, when you make a tactical decision, like what formation should I be in? Like, okay, well, it depends. And so a lot, it's, it's, it's cool about my job. It's, it's like being in a fighter squadron when, uh, but all the uh, all the wingmen are, are the software engineers that are building these behaviors, and uh, it, it turns out it's it's really it's a lot of fun. But it's it's uh, I like to say it's it's easier to teach the uh, our software engineers how to be fighter pilots than to teach uh, how to build AI uh, for fighter pilots. Yeah, <laughs> well, and I think that's a tough part because there's this big gap between people who understand the desired learning objectives or just our objectives in the fighter space, and there's people who understand how to program it. And being able to bridge that gap and like say the words that make sense to an engineer to get the end result for the fighter pilot. Uh, I always tell my buddy uh, Tron, he is uh, he's a computer science engineer, engineer, got his master's in it. So he he speaks both languages, though. so he can write programs and do all these things. And he's a fighter pilot, so he understands the stuff. Uh, would you say so one of the things I always wonder about when it comes to AI and or these kind of autonomous execution is what is the assumption for data gaps so you know like all of us we lose sight lose the fight so if if ai doesn't have like high fidelity data does it go into effectively like a really good coast mode or inertial rates or you know what does it do then that's a great that is a really great question so the process of training a behavior right just like if you didn't know any better and you know, you lost sight, your, your instinct is so that you would ease off the G like, Oh, what happened? Right. When really your, your instinct should be tightened down and figure it out in about 10 seconds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because I don't know where he is, but I know if I keep turning, I'll create angular problems and maybe some closure and that's the best of the worst situation. Right. Yeah. Well, the same thing with, with, uh, an agent when you're training an agent early on, like it, it needs, it needs good data to develop, uh, behaviors. Um, and now it's incentivized to do this behavior. So you could dial, you can start removing some of that data and then that uncertainty, and you can change the operating environment too. So uh, we have a, 
we have a program we're working on where we have uh, basically it's an IADS and it's uh, like swarming munitions, like think swarming cruise missiles through IADS hitting targets. And you know some of those SAMs you know are uh, in the script. Some of them are pop up targets, and some of the targets beyond beyond the IADS are, are you know dynamic targets. And so when the environment changes, um, or what do I need to do to get clarity on on the tactical problem I'm trying to solve? Uh, so we build build for that, and then like I said, because it has that maturity, when you start removing that information, it has enough insights to to continue doing what it thinks is the best thing. And then I guess after the fact you can look at it and just like we know we learn in the debrief you can kind of reward some of those hey you made a good real-time decision here versus that was probably not the best or is that too dynamic and too nebulous of a environment to make no that's and that's what's really great is we you know once we kind of bound the problem like here like don't hit the ground don't have a midair and the merge and you and you you bound the problem a little bit then what we can do is you know we dial up the learning and so we'll run, you know, a million scenarios a day to train the behavior. And so, you know, click the button, go home, come in the next day. Engineers bring it up. Okay, what did it do? What did it learn overnight? And sometimes, you know, there's some interesting excursions, and you're like, oh, it's it's actually developed. It's developed its own tactic. Like, oh, let's yeah. see if, the, and it actually works pretty good. Like, okay, interesting. Sometimes it does something, and you go, don't do that. Uh, so with reinforcement learning, you basically are de-emphasizing the things you don't want to do and you're trying to to reinforce and prioritize the things you do want it to do so that's kind of the 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 way that we approach that and as the missions um in the programs that we're in get you know it's it, the growth of complexity is exponential you know we started with a we still we actually started with a quadcopter um back in uh probably six seven years ago now and we moved to a quadcopter that's uh deployed with socom so we've had the, the company's had um, AI on quadcopters deployed since 2018. Wow. So it's not, you know, it's not new. Um, how it's being applied might be new to some parts of, uh, of you know, flying, but, but it's been doing things and solving problems um, for a while. Uh, but I say that to say, like, there's still a long way to go. Um, trust, <laughs> trust in the tech is, uh, you know, has to follow demonstrated performance. We're actually going to have some live fly um, things live flying this year um, on F-16 and some other platforms uh, to demonstrate, um, you know, autonomy. It's making its own decisions and maneuvering aircraft. So it's 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 an exciting year. It's going to be a really exciting year. That's really cool. I'm looking forward to hearing more, you know, kind of what comes out of all that. One question, you know, obviously being a Viper dude. uh, So is it like a Block 50? Like what are they using for their BFM F-16? It's a uh, it's a Lockheed um, F sixteen model. Oh, okay, so just there's, one there's, of the yeah. There's a whole bunch of different types of F sixteen models. It's like one of the most common ones that is used in the R and D field because uh, it has you. it's has enough detail, but it has a lot of commonality and kind of cross platform application. So the you. so it's easy to train a behavior uh, on that. And what's interesting is you know you can train it so it, it understands the maneuvers and stuff. And the extensibility of a behavior is you go, okay, now I'm going to put a different aircraft model in it. You go, okay, so now, you know, an F-15 flies way different than an F-16. Yeah. And so that transferability, okay, now it has to learn how to do some things all over again. But the basics of why it's trying to do things is the same, right? Like the concepts of of BFM and an F-16 and an F-15 are the same. Yeah. 
they're, they're the basics Trying are the same. So what, so those yeah. fundamentals, just like you're, you know, when you, you, uh, you know, switch airplanes and <laughs> you're, you're taking that knowledge from the F-16 with you and you go, oh, it's just like the F-16 except this. Oh, it's just like what I'm used to except that. And so you're applying, you know, that the experiences you have behind you uh, to kind of solve the problems in front of you. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And it's, I mean, it's, again, not being a computer guy, like hearing those things, you're like, that's amazing. That just, it is beyond my even comprehension that we're able to yeah, do Yeah, it's also wicked, with. wicked hard. And we have some really <laughs> smart people that uh, that love uh, doing it. And so, you know, we're, we're fighting over, you know, the fight for talent isn't really between, um, you know, so much like the primes and the, the startups um, like us, uh, but it's the, you know, Tesla, you know, they have autopilot, right? So it's the yeah. same kind of um, models and architectures that kind of go into that. And what, what do you want to do? You want to, you want to, you know, you want to uh, have an autopilot for a, a car? You want to put AI on an F-16? Like, what do you want to yeah. do? So that's kind of, <laughs> the, it's been, it's been, it's been awesome to see. Uh, and all, most of our engineers are really young. So we recruit from some top tier universities. And, you know, as a, uh, I was at Langley Air Force Base um, earlier this week, actually, and we had two of our engineers that are building some uh, behaviors for a, one of our programs, and they had never been on a military base. So like, we're going to go to Langley Air Force Base. And so we got yeah. took them out the flight line and never seen a fighter jet before. And so it's it's a really, I, I, I'm having a really good time so far at, the, at my new job. It's just, it's kind of a, takes me back to like, you see the, the interactions and that, that teaching you know, it's like teaching a, you're a, you're an instructor in the, in the Viper before you left. Right. Yep. Yeah. So think of it as like you're, you have your, your students in the brief and you say, okay, you're going to go do this. And they go, okay. And then you tell them, here, this is why you're going to do it. Or when this happens, do this, here's how you do it. Okay. Well, for the software engineers, they go, okay, well, well, why? Well, because of this, when this happens, this is why you would want to do that. Like, yeah, but why? Well, because of this other thing okay but why you get like three whys <laughs> deep into every decision and that's the nugget of info that they actually need to to build a reinforcement learning model to train these behaviors so being able to like uh, i was on a uh, meeting yesterday and i was explaining um a commit and a crank and it was like a one hour discussion of like <laughs> a commit a shoot and crank and when would i crank and all the different types of cranks and which one would I use this one and that one? And, and so getting to that level of explainability so the software engineer can, can go back, okay, I know I need to optimize for this. Uh, I had a meeting uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago and it was about turning around, like, like teaching, uh, building an agent to turn around. Uh, there's some uh, Air Force programs and stuff we're working on. And uh, like, okay, like, and you think about it, there's like seven different types of maneuvers that you would do. It's about seven or so. Like, well, I can I can do like an energy sustaining level turn. I could do a kind of a, you know, a, a slice back. I could do just a, you know, 40, like a instrument level turn. I can do a split S. Uh, so there's all different ways that I can turn around. Um, I can do, you know, a pitch up or a slice back, right? So I can go up or down when would I use all of those maneuvers and why? And so going through and explaining like this, you know, in this situation, the fastest way you want to turn around is do a split S. Like this is what it costs. You optimize for this, but your trade off is you lose that. And so having that kind of detail to then again, build a, a uh, 
a neural network to train a behavior to to make the decision. So I just say turn around, target the guy, that guy, and based on the environment. So whether it's uh, you know risk risk emission, risk to force, where it's at, it will make the decision to choose which maneuver it wants to do. Yeah, that's pretty pretty awesome, and it's it's one of the things that again talking to my buddy Tron about it because he kind of sees things that way and you can't, you can't kind of have a surface level understanding or a surface level level explanation and write code off of that. Cause it's, it's not specific enough. You need, like yep. you said, to like three or four levels deep to the true thing that's trying to be accomplished because that's what they have to code. Uh, rather than like you said, it's, it ends up just being like a rote maneuver that it's like, just do this maneuver. And it's like, well, it can't, it can't make decisions off of that. Cause it just, does the thing that it was told to do. Yeah, so, the, so you can uh, see in that example, there's like, you know, those maneuvers themselves are like low levels of autonomy, right? But yeah. they're built into this kind of decision tree architecture that uses kind of a hybrid of, of that, you know, deterministic and non-deterministic um, decisions, if you will, or, or outputs. So that's why you can say, turn around, and then it, it picks one and now you're trying to debrief it. You know, hey, why did you do a pitch back and uh, why did you do this instead of that? Why did you turn left versus turn right? Like, interesting. Yeah. Like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, we didn't, we didn't give it enough data to make what we would consider the best decision, right? And then sometimes it, it you know, do something and surprise you. Oh, you ever been to, uh, you know, one example, you ever a fly and you go, hey, when this happens, wingman, I want you to turn left. And then... Uh, you, you know, an hour and a half later, you're airborne. And uh, this the same, the thing that, that you briefed, that when this happens, turn left, and he turns right. And you go, what, what are you doing? You know, the, you don't go, well, you know what, you're the, there's something wrong in your brain. Um, like, clearly, you're an idiot. And, you know, you're no good. I don't trust you. Like, that's not what happens with the human, right? You come back and you debrief it. Yeah. And sometimes you go, you know, it's perception, decision, or execution errors, right? Like, yep. you know, PDE. So, what did you perceive um, was going on here? And, it, and you know this, the, the amount of things as a, uh, as a flight leader instructor that you learn in the debrief that you didn't know yeah. is, uh, is amazing. <laughs> like, well, um, I, I perceived this. And then the instructor, you, oh, that's not what I perceived. Okay, so we have a disconnect in perception between the two of us. Let's look at the facts, see which one of us is more correct, and then we'll figure out where that disconnect came from. Sometimes the wingman's right, and his decision was right, because it was a misunderstanding of the situation from the flight lead. And sometimes it's the other way around. And so having that, um, I call it post-mission rationality. So the, the ability to go debrief that behavior and go, why did, he, why did he do that? You have to have that explainability. Otherwise, you're never going to trust it, right? So that wingman that you said go right and he turned left or vice versa, if you never had a debrief and could never talk to him about why he did that, you're like, hey, don't fly with that guy. If he might turn right, he might turn left. I don't know. Yeah. And so having that, that debrief ability is a fundamental part of ever getting this stuff out of um, the R&D phase and into uh, the field. Yeah, I think that uh, I spent my last uh, three years as an instructor at the FTU. And oh, yeah, so you know. <laughs> it's almost that. <laughs> I did like some an, FTU time, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like an entirely different animal. You know, you go through, you're an instructor pilot, you show up and they're like, hey, you need to do another upgrade because 
these kids are, uh, it's just different. There's a reason it's a separate upgrade for teaching at the FTU. Yeah, well, and, and it's good because just like explaining things to an engineer, you have to be as specific and deliberate with your words as possible, just like with a B courser. Uh, and I think that's where the thing, like you said, the debrief and getting data back out is super important because there are students out there that I assume most of us have seen where you're like, what were you thinking here? Or what were you looking at? And they're like, I don't remember. And it's just always, you know, it's almost like some, uh, some rote response and like, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't know. And you're like, all right, I'm, I'm losing trust <laughs> like in you're, you. You're going into your seer circle. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> well, and you just like, you know, it's almost like they just are like, if I say nothing, at least I can't get more in trouble. And you're like, that's, that's not right. the way to learn. Like you need the data back and forth. And if you're messing up, we need to know because that's how we fix it, you know? So that's good that that is kind of flowing into the, you know, the AI and hopefully all of our development across a lot of programs is the feedback loop, the ability to come up with an idea, try to execute it, and then learn from the execution to hopefully make it better the next time or we're probably not going to make progress or not great progress if we do. Yep, absolutely. The, uh, one of the things that I getting into flying fighters and everything, I, I didn't realize that there could be other problem sets that I would find interesting outside the jet, you know, like I was like, Oh man. And what I found is the innovation space is full of problem sets that I'm like, that's really cool. That's very interesting to me. And it piques my interest just like a tactical problem or flying jets. Uh, I assume you found something similar in the space with, uh, just the problem sets you get to see and work on. Yeah, my last assignment I, I really loved because uh, I worked at the wing level for the for the wing commander, and uh, I, my, I have a I was a director of staff, um, so you're probably familiar with that. My plaque that I got when I left it said it basically says you you are the world's worst director of staff. That's what my plaque says, <laughs> yes. and uh, and and the the reason was while the wing had a director of staff position, that's the position I was in. I did no directing of staff. That that was not what I did. I basically was the to director of strategy and innovation uh, for the wing. And so uh, a lot of the stuff we're doing, it was, uh, you know, it's very, very sensitive, very classified stuff, but we're able to go around and see finding opportunities across the portfolios of programs um, for uh, air combat command and global strike and create some synergies and all the other buzzwords on, but bore you with that, but finding those wicked problems and like, Hey, here's how we think we can solve it. And here's like, you know, we can solve it this way. We can solve it that way. Let's like, if we go big and we solve this problem, we'll win in a big way. If we just try to make these incremental changes, it'll be a problem for the next guy in two or three years. Like this will not fix itself. So going, you know, going after those wicked problems and uh, we get, we had some wins. Um, so one of the, one of the things I'll tell you one, um, one thing I'm proud of There's a few things I did there. Um, but one of them I'm proud of is uh, black flag. You ever heard of black flag? I don't think so. No. Okay. So you have red flag and everyone knows red flag. That's uh, that is training. So operationally it's go to analysis. They have training, uh, large force type stuff. Think mission commander uh, rides. Uh, you probably checkered flag. There's a green flag. There's actually a blue flag. There's all different flag level events. Um, but one thing that uh, the air force didn't have was a, um, a operationally focused large force test event hmm. so what we do is we would have we would spend all these money um, buying this uh, technology 
And then we have we develop tactics and some some integration with some, with some of the stuff that we have, whether it's software updates, hardware updates. Um, but we don't ever put them in a large force like stress test, deep end testing environment to see like does it really work or how can we use this uh, in like real life because it's not going to be you know two jets flying around. It's going to be twenty or two hundred. Like how is this going to work? And we uh, we kind of went to bat with that, and what we said is, you know, red, like red flag uh, without without actual like data informed tactics and integration. Uh, things like red flag is not advanced training; it's advanced trying. Like you're literally making things up, and it may work at a red flag, but that's not real. And the 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 data that you're getting for a red flag debrief is not actually good enough to validate tactics. And so there's a whole different level of instrumentation and data discovery that has to happen. And so Black Flag was was created uh, to solve that. And so that was kind of my uh, things I'm, I'm pretty proud of. And so we were, really able to get, we were able to actually build a wedge in the Air Force budget um, every year. that So it has money in perpetuity, if you will. We don't have to go with our hat in hand. So we built the budget process for that. And it's uh, it's got... It's got several million dollars a year just dedicated to the things that are going to be fielded to the warfighter in the next three to four years. Like, how are we going to integrate this so when it hits the fleet, you can you already know what you're going to do and what the you know the the capabilities and limitations of of any new um, you know thing that we get. Yeah, I, th- I think that's awesome because I, I agree. I've sat in a red flag debrief where you spend millions of dollars on this day of training between the pilots and all the, you know, the aircraft and the flying and all the support people will go into it. And then you'll get like DFPs and you'll get some kind of feedback. And at the end of it, you're like, well, that's not the reality because this threat wouldn't be that easily defeated or, you know, it's not just one of them there and, and all these kind of problems that we can't replicate because it's in, it's too expensive to replicate everything exactly the right way. Uh, so that's good that they're, they're going beyond that step. And then, like you said, rather than just like stove piping and it's like, Oh, this works really well in a lab, like making it do, okay, this is where you're going to be asked to execute. Um, you know, can you still do the thing you say you can do, uh, in there? So I think that's awesome. I'd, I'd like to go fly in one of those if it's, uh, if it's for us, uh, Air breathers. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, uh, we uh, most of them are at, we're done at Nellis or Edwards, or we, we actually combine the airspace. We have a big airspace between the two, and then we we actually team up with our uh, the developmental test community. They have an event at Edwards called Orange Flag, which is kind of test card. Uh, it, it's large force test, but it's kind of test card event driven. And so I've got all these assets in the same airspace. Like what what do I what can I do to leverage the systems of these different aircraft and. A lot of great data coming out of that. And the difference is being like uh, at at Nellis for Black Flag. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned your experience at Red Flag. So you'd say you have a your DFPs and your scenarios are all driven by off of do- desired learning objectives. And anyone who spent any time around anything large force, uh, the first thing that happens is you have competing interests for desired learning objectives. <laughs> and so you know, don't fight the scenario. We're going to do this. We're going to create this stupid scenario that makes no sense because I need to show this this kind of problem to get a learned uh you know a learning event right and then how that learning event goes is your debrief focus point whereas uh in operational tests for black flag we said okay get rid of all of that all we have is desired test objectives 
So we could all die and we have a valid test. We could all win and we could have you know an invalid test. And so what we wanted to do is make it um, test uh, objective driven and then build a scenario to meet those test objectives. So it wasn't about learning and it wasn't about winning. It's about getting the right data. Yeah, I think, uh, see, and that sadly, that should be our goal in a red flag. Like I've seen it and I, I assume you've seen it over the years. Like you go to a red flag and then you spend literally 12 hours, one whole day mission planning for the next day. And there's, you know, handful to 20 people in the room. And then you have a, a white force, which is the team that's kind of managing the scenario from the other side or just the overall scenario. And the problem is you put in these RFIs or requests for information. And you can always tell when you either ask the question that they haven't thought of yet, or you ask the right question, which is going to kind of like unlock the Rubik's cube of the problem. And they're like, oh, we can't tell you that. And you're like, if we should feasibly be able to get this information, you're not going to give it to me because it's going to ruin your game to give right. me training. And you're like, we, we've like gotten into this like death spiral of like, no, 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 this is for your training. That's why you can't do your full up thing. And you're like that, this is just frustrating now. It's, it's, you know, you're, you're making bad learning objectives. Uh, it almost, yeah. And I'd say, yeah, I'd say the value, you know, the value of red flag like these days is, um, you know, like being honest, just geographically and constrained, uh, the threat, density there's just certain things you'll you're like today you cannot do you just won't yeah. be able to do or there's sensitive things that you don't want to you know i don't want to flip the switch or i don't want to fly with that asset or there's all kinds of things like because everyone is watching now from space and so you think a red flag is it's a good way to get uh weight off wheels a lot of things and stress test you um it, it's mostly administrative but, but stress testing you in a way airborne um, that you probably can't get anywhere else with that kind of density of aircraft and that airspace maneuvering and just, you know, the overwhelming part of the radios. And so there, there is the live fly aspect, like it is, it is critical, but you're right. That's, that's not, it's not the 10 mission. Then the 10 missions that you're going to do aren't going to be realistic anyways, for a whole bunch of reasons like we just talked about. And so a lot of that stuff is going to actually happen um, either completely in the sim um, with physics-based modeling in a sim, or it's going to be done uh, live virtual constructive, which is probably going to be the future. So yeah. instead of launching an op four, maybe my op four is is all you know virtual or constructive being pushed, and so I can see them you know 100 200 miles in front of me. There's really no one out there, um, but to all my systems and everything, obviously if I get close enough and I you know use my Mark one eyeball, there's nothing there, but. Yeah. Beyond visual range, it all looks the same because you can't see it physically. Your sensors are telling you what's there. So if when you can think, inject that, that's the kind of the future. Yeah, I've been, I love doing red flags. I mean, red flag Nellis, red flag Alaska, like they are some of my favorite things, mainly because everybody's in the room. And we've all, we've all been at those times where you're at your squadron, you're in like the third month straight of your missionized scenarios. And you're like, cool, this notional asset is over here and they're going to be doing this good work and this notional asset's here and this notional asset's pushing there. And they're all fake and you just kind of hand wave them and then you move on and nobody cares about them. And all that does is create, again, bad learning objectives. But this is like at the squadron level on the day-to-day. And now you don't have a realistic like, what is my striker's actual tactic? Like, what do I have to assume my striker will do as a default so I know if that's accurate or not? Or what will my escort be doing? So I found 
between Red Flag Alaska, Red Flag Nellis, going to Guam and doing Cope North, there was a lot of cool stuff in the fact that you would be standing there across the table and saying, like, what is your tactic? What are you going to execute today? So I think they're great for that. And like you said, being like the pink body in the aircraft, flying around in a, if you're lucky, 4,000-foot block with four aircraft, 2,000-foot block is more realistic, and you have to make it work, and you have to actually execute uh, and be safe and stay in your block and defend as best as you can without making dangerous situations and just like nonstop radio calls. And you have to like find that little gap in the radio calls to make your radio call. And I think that's good. Cause I think that helps if nothing else, the fog and friction that you're going to experience in a real war. I think that's, I mean, it's fun. It's fun to be the dude flying around in there. Uh, but I think you're right. And that is, that is, probably going the way of the dodo and there's going to be isn't less and cr- less yeah isn't it crazy think about this it's 2022 like the red there's a red flag i think going on this week actually uh that red flag in 2022 they are using a single uhf frequency to communicate between this large force package which is the same technology that we used in you know the 1960s yeah like it has not changed at all the aircraft change, but the way we actually communicate, and we have data link and stuff, but overwhelmingly, uh, a single UHF frequency. Yeah, and you think, like, if you just explain it to anyone who hasn't been there, even anybody who's been there, they're like, that sounds insane. You're like, yeah, no, I agree. It does sound insane. Like, that's, yeah. uh, but it's it's kind of kind of fun, you know, in doing that. So kind of shifting gears. Uh, you said you worked at the Pentagon for a while. What were you doing over there? Uh, so... <laughs> I was uh, I was uh, worked in the legislative liaison office. So I was the um, my portfolio is basically fighters and munitions, uh, except for nuclear stuff. Um, and I was the I was the person in the Pentagon for the Air Force uh, that would go to Congress and engage um, the offices and the committees, um, to the Armed Services Committees in the House and the Senate, on uh, those portfolio programs and. As my additional duty, which is kind of funny, uh, the way that the, the deals are structured is that I was also the um, legislative liaison for the JPO for F-35. Uh, so I, my additional duty was do all the F-35 congressional stuff. So no one's, no one's interested in the F-35 on the Hill, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I was doing that and the Air Force stuff. Uh, so I did that for a while. Um, really interesting assignment it kind of it's one of those cross-functional assignments um I like to say we're the the most powerful action officers in the building because we uh, we have access to all the senior leaders we you know make sure that we you know here here's what these people are interested in here's why they're asking like here's their equities all politics are local so you got to understand that um and you got to understand why they're asking the, the questions so we can go and have a, a fruitful conversation so you know, hey, I'm interested in learning more about, um, you know, F-16, like, uh, radars. Like, okay, like, why? Like, I just want to make sure we get the, the right answer. Oh, it turns out, like, the, you know, the, the the plant in Maryland that actually makes the radars, the mod line, is in your district. So now you, you instantly care because there's a lot of jobs and a lot of money coming into your uh, district. Okay, great. Uh, so, like, those types of connections. And then, you know, there's certain things that, you know, things that aren't... Um, in a budget, for instance, like future stuff um, in the in the programming side, like future years programming, 
that's outside of the scope of like congressional oversight. So there's certain things we don't like, Hey, we're not going to talk to Congress about this stuff because that is not, it's pre-decisional until, um, uh, OSD approves it and really OMB, which is the budgeting part for the white house, because there are different branches of government. So we gotta be very cognizant about that. If it's a like approved thing we're doing in this branch of government, we can talk to the other branch of government about it. If it's something that's pre-decisional, Hey, we're thinking about this. We're thinking about that. Or, Hey, we're doing a study. And this is why I see a lot of congressional language about studies and reports, a lot of report language. It's to try to gain some insights of where uh, the department of defense is thinking of going. And so that report or constraining. So, Hey, I want to retire the, uh, you know, I want to retire all the F-22s. Like, okay, well, Congress says you have to do a report before you do anything within 45 days. And it has all these different report requirements. Like we want to know all this stuff. And so it gives Congress the, the, some insights into that. And, but it also makes the Department of Defense do their homework. Turns out we make a, make a lot of decisions with, uh, with no data behind them or very little data. We have some, you know, people have scar tissue and experiences. Everyone has experiences uh, when, you're, when you get to the point of working in the Pentagon to include, you know, various senior leaders. And it turns out a lot of decisions are made based on their feelings. Uh, so, so having that conversation of like, Hey, you can't say that. And like, well, I don't like the F-22 because, uh, you know, a long time ago this happened and I want to get rid of them. Like, no, no, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. Uh, obviously that's an extreme example, but yeah. uh, you kind of get the point. So that's why I worked for the secretary of the air force. Uh, so I did that for about a year and a half, two years or so. Uh, and I actually spent some time on the joint staff. So I worked for uh, general Dunford. So in the, in the chairman's, uh, kind of congressional affairs, uh, side. Um, which is really interesting as well. So a lot of senior leader interactions, and it's really interesting to kind of sit down with the you know the secretary of the Air Force, the chief of staff of the Air Force as a, as a major, and kind of go through talking points and and you know and I'm you know in my job I was I had the entire fighter portfolio, so I, I could tell you every program and every weapon system and what's going on and where the you know where all the dead bodies are buried and you know and really what are the opportunities right? So how can you know how can we help you? Uh, that's always the kind of the big leap behind. Well, I think that uh, I think this topic is kind of like an entire podcast in and of itself because oh, yeah. so, so many times I have all these questions, you know, and I, and I'm smart enough now to know that I don't know. But you're like, why do we buy things over other things? You know, why does it seem like we can't have a long term plan? Because it seems like every so often we have this variability where we are not following through on stuff, you know, like we didn't buy as many Raptors as we were going to. We're not probably not going to buy as many 35s as we were going to. And what would you say is the most, most glaring issue or something that you saw was either good or bad there that you didn't know before you got there? Uh, the amount of people in that building. So back up a little bit. So the Pentagon was built before World War II. Okay. And it was built, and there's there's the history behind. It. I can't remember the exact number, but it was that that whole building. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's it's not a small building, and it was built in like a year. Like that whole building start like from breaking ground to like people in the office. It was a year, year and a half. It was something ridiculous, and it was built to basically house the staff for World War II. And World War II, we had millions of people in the military. So if you look at the size of the force now. What difference between that? I'll, I'll get, this has a point to it. Trust me. <laughs> so you look at the size of the force now; it's you know, orders of magnitude smaller. 
and were enabled by computers, which didn't exist back then. And so do you think we have more people or less people in the Pentagon today than we did when it opened? I would hope we have a lot less people. We have a lot more people. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Way more. We have so um, many people actually assigned to the Pentagon. They don't fit in the Pentagon. Uh, so we actually have uh, the Department of Defense has uh, entire office buildings um, in Crystal City and, and over across the river in Bowling for overflow because there's so many people assigned to the Pentagon. You know, why, why is that? And I tell you that to tell you this, that there, the, the amount of pockets of excellence and stovepipes uh, in that building is amazing. And so it was, it was fascinating for me to have a job where I it was a kind of a cross-cutting um, functional job. So I didn't have to, I could go and talk to the A3 people about operations and things like that. I can go talk to the A4 about maintenance and logistics. I could go talk to the five about strategy. Um, I could go talk to the eight about programming and where the money is and where it's not and kind of paint collectively, kind of figure out what is the actual picture? What's the truth? So there's only a few a few places on the air staff in the Pentagon that has that kind of cross cutting functionality to be able to like what is the what is the actual truth of what's going on on this particular topic? Uh, no one really has all the the pieces of the puzzle, and so what I enjoyed about my job is kind of going around and, and finding all those pieces of the puzzle. And you'd think it would you know computers and stuff would would help, but it, it really doesn't. <laughs> Well, I feel like it's probably like a standard military base. You just need to walk over to their shop and look them in the eye because it turns out phones get unanswered, emails get unreturned. You're like, man, it's a, it's a lot easier yeah. when you can just walk to their room and say like, hey, we need to get this done. The, uh, that's, yep. it's, it's funny that the building is so full considering that all I got told in every fighter squadron and every MAGCOM I was in was, hey, we can't get any 11Fs to fill the staff gigs. And you're like, well, if none of the people, if we're not filling any of these staff gigs, then why are there so many people in the building? It seems like there's there's probably a lot of uh, lack of uh, of getting stuff done. Maybe. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely room for improvement from the uh, <laughs> personnel side. I'll say that. It's a um, nice way to say you, it. You could, yeah. You, there's definitely room for improvement, but I also say that it's absolutely critical that you do have. Um, operators that go to those kind of staff positions. Because if you, you know, you know what's, <laughs> if you don't want to go do it, you know what, someone else is going to have to go do it. And so, you know, you might not like their decisions because their decisions have no information behind them because they don't have any idea what they're doing. Well, so there are certain jobs that absolutely need to be filled that are filled, but they're filled by the wrong person because those, we can't fill those types of positions. So the, uh, the rated manning, um, document the rmd that comes out every year that kind of manages that a little bit even that has its own you know dirty history of um, making up positions so it looks like our manning is a different percentage so we can advocate for this and it's it, it yeah it's a lot of inside baseball that happens that you know when you get to that kind of stuff well that's when uh i learned it actually relatively young at my first assignment in uh, japan i was talking to a guy who's working at pacaf in hawaii and uh the, he was like, yeah, you know, the, the A3, which is ops, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So the guy who makes decisions for A3 acquisitions. So it's like, hey, what, you know, are we going to get a new radar for the Viper? Or are we going to get Hemix for whatever? Um, he's like, that guy is a 135 pilot. And he's like, because none of you guys will go. And that's when I realized, like, we're, 
you know, I've, I've said this a couple times, like if fighter pilots are good at anything else, it's cutting off their nose despite their face. Like it is like, I'm going to be a real good fighter pilot and that's about it. And then everything else, like be damned. And then what you end up finding is you end up having more problems to solve and even more difficult ones to solve because you have old jets and you have busted products. And it's because nobody kind of, it's not even falling on the sword. It's like just doing the right thing and filling these spots and actually making it better. Cause you could probably, and, and tell me if you would agree with this, you can probably do more good for the bros and more good for the people in the squadrons by doing those things and being a good advocate rather than just like, Hey, I'm just going to hang out and, and have fun in the roll calls and, and, you know, go, go fight. Yeah. Yeah. There's a podcast that you did recently. You were talking about how you were trying to do all this stuff at the, at home. And I think it was, and, as you were leaving, all the stuff was showing up and you're like, yeah, you know, it wasn't about me. It's about the next guy. Right. And yeah. so if you take that kind of vignette and you just, you know, magnify it, you know, if, if everyone just stayed in the squadrons, you know, you'd be, you'd be really good at, at, you know, winning today's war. You will absolutely guarantee you we lose tomorrow's war because yeah. the decisions and things that we're doing for force structure investments, that will build this future force that your replacement will be flying and operating in. Like who's going to make those decisions? Yeah. And I wish I could say that I didn't know, you know, I wish I could say like, ah, I never knew this was reality. I knew that it was the reality as like a old Lieutenant young captain. And I was just like, I don't believe you, you know, and they just kept flying, you know, flying jets and doing the thing. Cause that's yeah. what I wanted to do. And, and I finally got a little older and understood that there's, there's goodness in doing something other than just flying the airplane and being really good at that. There's goodness in, in doing all of the secondary and tertiary things because that is important. Like it is important, like you said, because it's not today, it's not next month, it's not even next year, it's a decade, it's five years, it's though that timeline where you are behind the power curve and you don't even know it because you won't even lift your nugget up to look beyond like tomorrow's BFM sortie. Uh, so that, yeah. th that's kind of what got me into doing this is I want, I want to take the opportunity and, and understand what I've learned and then, and then do something different rather than just doing what I've done for, you know, a decade or so, uh, make, make a change. So we'll, we'll kind of bring it all back around. Do you, did you come up with something? I know we've been talking about a lot of stuff. What was a surprise good deal for you, uh, in all the jobs you got to do? When I got my uh, my assignment to DC, um, I was uh, work. I was going to go work for a, a senator, and so uh, when I went to DC, uh, I purposely avoid politics. Um, you know, we're politically agnostic, right? I I had uh, ignored politics for so long in my adult life. Even when I got the assignment and I got to DC, uh, when people like terms that you think are that were pretty common like you know red versus blue left versus right I'm like i literally have no idea what that means they're like what like how how did you get this assignment like how could you work in congress and not even understand the like the very basics yeah. like because i ignored it on purpose my entire adult life <laughs> um there's a reason why right because it's uh yeah it's it devolves very quickly into Anyway, so my uh, I didn't think I was going to like that assignment whatsoever, and I didn't know anything about it. And I ended up uh, really enjoying that assignment because I learned a lot. Um, 
I learned a lot about politics, uh, obviously, but I also learned that, you know, we talk about like, you know, hey, you serve your country in uniform. Like, man, let me tell you, there are there are people on the other side of the river in the in, in that uh, that building with the funny dome on top that that man, like they are some real patriots because they get paid not a whole lot of money. And the, the amount of work and stuff they're responsible for is ridiculous. And they're, they're doing it because that's how they're serving their country. And so whether they spend a year there or 10 years there or you know, 30 years, um, it was really interesting to see. And, and I was, I'm really fortunate to have uh, interacted with as many people as I did uh, when I was on the Hill. So that's one of those things I didn't think I was going to hate it. Or I thought I was going to hate it. And I really enjoyed the experience. Well, that's good. Because I feel like as, a, as somebody who, who hasn't been there, who only gets information through all these different avenues... And you're like, who knows what's reality and who knows, you know, if they're good dudes, bad dudes or whatever. Uh, so that's good to hear that somebody who's actually been there has, uh, has something good to say. One, one, uh, last question and I'll let you get going. Uh, we kind of yeah. haven't hit this side, uh, but it's so acquisitions. I feel like I've talked a lot about, uh, Sibbers and the innovation side and AFWorks and all that. What have you seen over the years, old acquisitions, new acquisitions, new programs, Sibbers, all that kind of stuff. Do you see that we're going in the right direction or do you think we need to change and improvise and adapt to actually be effective in our innovation and kind of moving forward? Ah, that's a multi-hour answer. Yeah, um, <laughs> I have to have you. Yeah, my, yeah, just my opinion. So yeah, parting shot here. Here's yeah. an hour. <laughs> no, take uh, your time. All you need. Yeah, here's what I'll say. I'll say that the process... Um, you have to, if you, the process is why we, things are the way they are. And so when we went to the, um, you know what PVBE is, that's the, basically the process that runs the entire department of defense for its planning, programming, budgeting, and execution. And that system was, uh, was built, um, out in the sixties. I want to say it was like the mid sixties. And that's the process we still use. And that broke things down into like line items. This is why you have budget line items. And then when it goes to Congress, that line item, people move money between the line items. And it's very, you know, the, the, bu the budget request is you know, thousands of pages long, huge amounts of books, because all these line items here, line item for that. Um, you know, like the F-16 has is broken out into like all kinds of different line items, depending on what you're doing. And uh, the process to build the budget for all those different line items takes, you know, 18 to 24 months. So right now, you know, recording this, that's, July of 2022, the 2024 budget for the Department of Defense is being wrapped up. So when you think, like, so between now and then, um, I'm sure something, some technology will present itself and there'll be an opportunity to be like, hey, the work fighter could use this. Yeah, I'm sure they can. <laughs> it's not in the budget. Uh, so that's, so really it goes back to the process. There's ways to, to there's certain things you could do to, to fix that. Um, yeah, there's different authorities and stuff to, to kind of rapidly test, rapidly acquire things. Um, they're not used as much as you probably would think, even though Congress wrote the authorities because it, it the role of oversight. Um, so if you certain programs we have, you can you can do a sole source, uncontestable, like rapid acquisition contract. It's written in law. You can do it. And then, but if you do it too much, Congress won't like it. If you don't do it enough, someone else in Congress will say, do more of these. And so you're like, oh my God, like 
why don't you just tell me how many you want me to do? <laughs> give me like a, a cap. How much money a year can I spend with this authority? Like that doesn't exist. But it's a very year by year kind of you know temperature of the water um, because you know the step one in government is if you lose a contract uh, in the in the military, your competitor just files a protest and then you just lost you know eight months of legal paperwork, you know, and now no work happens, right? Uh, or you don't get the budget on time because um, the the Pentagon really we all run off of fiscal years. And we have different colors of money. Most of the money we have is uh, one-year money. And so it goes away at the end of the year if, we're, if we don't obligate it. And so you've seen this, just like flying our program closeouts, because that's one-year money. And the amount of just complete wholesale abuse of taxpayer dollars the last four to six weeks of every fiscal year within oh, yeah. the government is insane. And it's all driven off of a system because it's going to expire. If they would say, hey, you can roll that over for another six months into the next fiscal year before it expires, like, oh, okay. Well, now I have 18 months to execute. And the reason why that's probably important is because we don't get the money on time to begin with. And so if it's only one year money and Congress, uh, as my math is right, has only passed a appropriations to actually give us money when the year starts twice in the past 15 years on time. So. When you lose three to four months out of your 12 months waiting on Congress to give you the money, and then the money they give you expires in seven or eight months, that leads to all kinds of uh, contract delays. So your defense industrial base is waiting uh, to get, you know, get on contract to do work. And so you'll see these flurries of checks and contracts starting to get people you know, working. But the first quarter of every fiscal year is like the most useless quarter um, because it's usually under a continuing resolution. There's no money. Um, for, for a dude in the fighter squadron, he, all he knows is like, I don't know, it's a, it's a new, my flying hour pr uh, program closeout last month, which is hell is over. My, I, you know, I have a clean slate to screw around for a month or two before I have to get real serious about sorties and hours. Uh, but yeah, but for the big macro level, like huge systemic problems. And that drives all kinds of weird things. I mean, we can talk about AFWERKS and SIBRUS and uh, those are all different programs that are federally, uh, SIBRUS federally funded, AFWERKS basically uh, white labels, sivers, um, to do innovation with, uh, but it's all the same, uh, federal funding. Yeah. I think that's, that's a frustrating thing. And I kind of learned as the years went on at first, I didn't see the trend. And then after a few years, it's, Hey, we don't have any money, you know, Oh, will this TDY get funded or not? Because it's in the first quarter of the fiscal year, or even uh, yep. in the second quarter of the fiscal year. And then there's kind of some spending in the squadrons. And then as the summer kind of hits, you lose funding in the squadrons because the wings, everybody kind of like pulls those dollars back uphill uh, because they don't want to overspend, but we've barely been spending money for a couple months. And then you get to that August, September time. And then it's like, Holy cow, we didn't spend, you know, 60% of our money. What are we going to spend it on? And then you just have squadrons with like, you know, 80 inch TVs everywhere. And you're like, this is ridiculous uh yeah because the, that money has all kinds of restrictions on it too it's like when i you have i have a, a different problem what i really need is a, is i need 10 new computers because these are like five-year-old computers like well you have to go through this air force process to actually buy a computer you can't just go and buy it from like the same place the air force is going to buy it you have to go through this middleman and that's going to take six months of uh process like i don't have six months my money expires in four months what i can do though is i can buy computer monitors, office furniture, and TVs. And that's why every every military unit at the end of the year goes on a shopping spree and buys 
computer monitors, uh, <laughs> office chairs, and TVs. Yeah. But they don't buy computers because the computer is different, different uh, kind of money, different process. It's terrible. Yeah, it's bad. And I think that's that's where I mean, so much breakage is. And I, I talked to some companies, and they're like, "Oh man, like we're not sure if if we're going to get the funding or anything." And I was like, "Give it a couple months. Like who knows? People will start calling because they get phone calls from their boss and their you know, and people start calling downhill. And then all of a sudden, there's all this funding that needs to get spent. And you're like, so who knows what what the funding is going to look like at the end of the year or how much we're actually going to spend? Because for most of the year, a, a lot of it doesn't get allocated, uh, which uh, it is way easier said than done. I guarantee it. But that would be a great thing to fix in, in creating a better way that they allocate funds and are able to allocate funds to the things they actually need versus just allocating funds so we don't lose them for the future is uh, that would be very desirable for the for the person on the yeah. end of the whip so one thing i'll end on um and we can uh, we can hop off for the day i'm sure listeners are tired of listening to me <laughs> uh you know one of the things you, you talk about innovation and here's why and ai and innovation are those two words i really don't like i don't like the word innovation it's gotten used and abused um here's what i'll say like innovation happens when you have like basically three things that are kind of aligned right so you have um Unique, unique insights to a problem. You have um, the ability to solve that problem. Maybe it's a technological solution or something. And you have the resources to execute that. So uh, you have to have know the problem, have a solution, and have the resources. Um, that is not aligned in most places within the Air Force, right? So your wing commander. Uh, doesn't have the same money to actually solve the problems in his wing, right? He has no budget authority. He's given an operating budget to keep the lights on that he has to manage. And one of the reasons why they hold that money back, which you learn when you get older, like, oh, like that's all the money for the whole year. So if you're in like North Carolina, you have to weather through hurricane season. And so you're going to keep more money set aside to like clean the base up if hurricane hits or all these other things that like, oh, because if I don't have that money, I can't do it. So I, I can't I can't uh, obligate money that I haven't. That's not in my that's not in my account, if you will, right? Like yeah, the, there's no credit card for that in the government. So they keep that reserve to get through. In this case, hurricane season on the East Coast. And then I, as it turns out, like hurricane season is winding down when the fiscal year is winding down. And so now they're like, ah, spend your money. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's really fascinating when you look at that the disconnect between you know resources authorities. And, you know, insights of the actual like operating problem. Uh, yeah, if you could fix that, whether it's like a mission, uh, mission capital fund or something like that. And we do have a little bit of that, but they're, they're you know, there's a, it's called CRF. There's a commander's readiness fund. He, uh, every commander gets some money uh, a year, but it's not very much money. Um, it's enough to, again, buy some uh, monitors, some TVs or computer chairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that's the, the only thing I have to say is like about that is a lot of these innovation things are relatively small amounts of money. You know, they're not, yep. some of them are asking for millions, but they're like, hey, can I get 80 grand, 100 grand? And and sometimes that's available. And if, if they have those like CR funds, like that would be, I think that's what is changing it. And I think Luke does a, has been doing a great job with that, of just like, we found some money, we're gonna put it towards this program for a year and then see where we go. Uh, because, I mean, we have to make those small bets and keep pushing, because if we don't, I mean, it's, it's tough, but so before we get going, can you, uh, if you want people to contact you or whatever, where would you like them to reach out? Yeah. Contact? So, um, 
you can check out the website from the newsletter. It's uh, themerge.co. Um, and you can reach me on there through uh, news at themerge.co. Uh, that's probably the best place. Sign up for my newsletter and you get smarter. If not, you'll stay dumb. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, uh, well, thanks for being on the, uh, the podcast, Paco. And uh, everybody, thank you again for listening. And uh, remember, go to the, the uh, contact me at vader at kodiakshack.com. Check out our website, kodiakshack.com. And then if you do like the content and everything, please donate uh, through our website or the show notes uh, so we can uh, keep the podcast going. Thanks again, Paco. Thanks, Vader. See ya.